morning. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Luke 21, 17 through 19. Choir begins tonight. I'm looking at Jared. <laughs> so choir, 5 p.m. Tonight's music night. See Jared, invite friends. Singing begins at 6 p.m. Followed by ice cream in the fellowship hall. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. See Andrea's number there. Uh, this Thursday evening, October 4th, Forgotten Man Ministries Banquet. Flyer and sign-up sheet posted on the helps board. Please sign up today. Next Sunday, Dean Birch will be our speaker. Uh, following the worship hour, we'll have a communion service. Uh, no dinner and no evening service. So that's the first Sunday of the month. New Acts and Facts and uh, Free Grace Broadcaster are here and available on the foyer table. So please make use of those things. What else? Anything else? Forgotten? Missed? All right, then. Our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from Revelation, the second chapter. Read verses 8 through 11. stand together and open our service with prayer. <coughs> Dale, can I ask you again? Sure. Thanks. 
Father, once again, we thank you for this day. We ask you, Lord, that you would be with us in this service, not only that, in our entire life, that we could be a better servants to, the, to our Savior Christ, that we could be slaves, I think we're called to be slaves. morning. You take your Trinity, your red hymnal, and turn to number 98, number 98 in the, the red Trinity hymnal. was the first hand that I saw. 
Yeah, Andrew. I've called on Andrew. He's too. Battle in the Republic, okay. I think that's in the brown. Five, six, nine. In, he thinks in the brown. He thinks five, six, nine. Let's see. Yes, five, six, nine. Thank you. Five, six, nine. Andrew, do you have a reason for this one? You just want to sing it. Okay. It's a good hymn. 569 in the brown. You may stand if you feel feel you, you want to. reading this morning is from Luke, the 21st chapter, 
and we'll be reading verses 8 through 11. I'm sorry, my eyes jumped. Luke 21, 10 through 19. If you'll stand with me, we'll read together. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Ask that the Lord would bless the reading of his word. Take your red hymnal once again and turn to 396, 396 in the red.
our scripture text this morning is Luke 21. We're in a series called Joyful Souls. And in our last study, we considered the joy of future watch, by which we meant that while the world would love to know the future, it remains in the dark from self-inflicted ignorance because it will not take God's word seriously. But while we believers are not informed as to the day or the hour of Jesus' return, we are told enough to be encouraged and enough to at least know the signs of Jesus' coming so we will not be utterly surprised. What I am saying is that Jesus keeps his people abreast of their future. The patriarchs of old never did have their roots run deep in the soil of this world and this life. They looked for a heavenly country with a city whose architect and builder was God. And it's not because they didn't have the means to really set up uh, quite an estate here. Some of them were very rich. But they didn't see their wealth as heaven. And they didn't see their financial acuity as their savior. Well, we'll make it through these hard times because I know how to turn a buck. None of that. And then we pointed out that the future will be one of unrest with nation going to war against nation. Much of the mobilization being holy wars, we could say, because God's people are the subject. WMD News reported that more than 100,000 deaths of Christians occur globally have occurred globally every year for the past 10 years. 100,000 a year. That works out to one martyrdom every five minutes. So how long is our service today? Figure out how many Christians will lose their life just in the time of our worship service. Sources where most of the persecution are occurring is Iraq, India, the communist countries. Sad to say in some Roman Catholic countries where they still are fighting the Protestant Reformation. We also noted the future is one of natural disasters, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, signs in the heavens. An unsurpassed earthquake is coming in which God will shake not a local geographic area, but the world, the earth. Can you imagine that? I can't. God taking the, the earth, the globe, and just shaking.
Well, in today's study, we're going to move to Luke's account, chapter 21, because of the detail that Luke provides. One of the things I like about the synoptic gospel, synoptic means seen together. One of the things I like is the overlay. That is, they deal with the same event, the same teaching, but they provide insight as observed by the author who is enabled by God to see those things. What can we say about Luke? Well, he was Paul's personal physician, doctor, who accompanied him on his many missionary journeys. And as a physician, as a doctor, he was given to more detailed, more scientific observations, could I say it that way, of the things that he wrote. And it is by comparing the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that we end up with a fuller picture of the events Jesus' life and ministry. And that's all important. So, well, you didn't mention John's gospel. No, no, he's not part of the synoptics. He wrote his gospel at age 95. By the time he wrote his gospel, all of the other apostles were dead and gone. The Apostolic helpers, Timothy, Titus, Mark, all dead, all gone. So he's in a different category uh, all by himself. And thank God for the Gospel of John because he deals with some wonderful things about Christ that you wouldn't find in the other places. But he's not part of the synoptics. He's not out to duplicate. By the time he's writing, he's not out to duplicate what the other Gospel writers have written. He is adding new and wonderful things. Well, so much for John, because they were really in Luke's gospel today. As we come to our study, let's ask for the presence and power of our God. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and thank you that we have the opportunity to have our own copy of it. I'm just thinking this morning of the many places in the world, even after centuries of the gospel going forth, There are places still in the world that have no written Bible in their own native language. We are blessed. We have multiple translations. We have multiple Bibles on our shelves. Are we reading them? Are we studying them? I pray for those countries that are yet in darkness. They're dependent on missionaries coming preaching the word and not only this so but translating the word into their languages continue to spread your word lord that people will be saved and brought into your kingdom and work in our hearts today we ask in jesus name for his glory and our good we ask these things amen in this series joyful souls we're looking this morning at the joy of identity with Christ. It's especially joy to be identified with Christ during tough times. Are we in tough times? We're in tough times. And they're going to get worse. Persecution of believers, along with national upheaval, is predicted by Christ himself. Luke 21.10 talks about nation rising against nation. 
Boy, we're seeing that. It talks about national, excuse me, natural catastrophes, which we looked at last week. By the way, yesterday, terrible earthquake, 7.5 in Indonesia, causing a tsunami. You know what a tsunami is. It's a high wave that comes in off the oceans as a result of the tremendous earthquake. When it hits shore, the waves are 100 feet high or more. 300 people, more than 300 people dead in Indonesia from one earthquake and the tsunami. That's what I heard last night, 300. Now, this morning, the number might be even higher than that. I'll bet, yeah, I see Phil's going, yes, it's up. Do you know what it is, Phil? Over 800. One storm, over 800 people. It's 10% of the population of Lapeer. Yeah, George. Between the shore at 500 miles an hour. Did you hear that? all hear that? 500 miles an hour? Yeah, I know they move very rapidly. It's like the water is sucked away from the shore, built up, and then blasted back. And it's all due to the shock waves of the earthquake. God can do these things. He does do these things. And he's promised to do these things. Part of it is judgment, getting us ready for the great judgment. But Luke tells us in verse 12, but before all this, these catastrophes, nation rising against nation, before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. Matthew's account shows us the connection with the nation saying, You will be hated by all nations because of me. Matthew 24, verse 9. You, you probably are thinking, well, what, what did I ever do to solicit this kind of hatred in people? Well, Mark's account gives us no specific timeline, but his teaching on this follows what he wrote about the escalation of wars and natural catastrophes, so his account harmonizes with Luke and Matthew. And as we take all this into consideration, the trouble seems to be arise from the nations, or the world, let me say, refusing to abide the presence and testimony of God's people giving forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Talk about what will grate them the most, what people hate the most, is hearing about the gospel. Now we're, we think, wait a minute, doesn't the word gospel, angelion in Greek, doesn't that mean the good news? The good news. Well, if it's the good news, how come people hate it so much? Well, they hate it so much because in the good news, before you can accept the good news, you've got to learn something about the bad news. <laughs> and the bad news is that we're all sinners, and we all need the grace and mercy of God. And if 
you don't come to Christ as Savior, you remain, you remain under the judgment and the wrath of God. And people don't want to hear that. You know, but they need to hear that because in order for them to understand their need of salvation, they have to see how lost they are. Before they hear the good news, they need to hear how bad they are and the bad news and the remedy. And that's our task. So in other words, our day is a macrocosm of what occurred with Jesus' ministry in Palestine in the days of his earthly sojourn and with his apostles in their missionary outreach after his ascension. Neither Jesus nor his disciples had an easy go of it as they taught the gospel to the pagans and idolaters of their day. Nor was Jesus' teaching well received by the religious elite of the Jewish faith in his day. He did not fit in with their vision of a political Messiah, who would overthrow Rome, who would emancipate them from Roman rule. They wanted a Messiah who could raise an army of warriors with swords and shields and chariots. Not a Messiah with the spiritual sword of God's word that brought conviction and wounds to the conscience about sin and shields against the damning lusts of the flesh and chariots like that of which we read concerning Elijah. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire, of horses of fire, appeared and separated the two, that is Elijah and Elisha, and Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. Whoa! Second Kings 2, verse 11. And Elisha, Elijah's successor, picked up Elijah's cloak and resumed the ministry that fell to his shoulders from his predecessor. Persecution of the nations should not be a surprise to any of us, but it often is. Like I, I said, I mean, what have we done? to deserve this great hatred. Here's what it is. Jesus predicted it. Here's the words of our Savior. If, it's not an an if in the sense of doubt, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, as it is. You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. I'm reading scripture. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and that's not a, an, uh, in conjecture, they did persecute him. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. 
They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. John 15, verse 18 through 20. All the God talk that you hear people talk about, it's not the God of the heavens. It's not the God of the scriptures. It's the God of their own imagination. And when you start preaching that Christ, who is the son of that God, they don't like it. They don't like it so much. In fact, they will hate you for it. John 15 is part of that teaching. And if you know anything about John's gospel, John 14, 15, and 16, those three chapters are given by Jesus to his disciples the night of his betrayal and arrest in which he was incarcerated and then tried before Pontius Pilate. We could say these were his parting instructions to his disciples before he was crucified. And so this makes for sobering words. A kind of, <coughs> can I say it this way, a kind of last will and testament from Christ to his disciples. But as I indicated, this is, this is not something the church in America has taken to heart. Why not? Well, who likes the idea of being persecuted? Who likes the idea of being locked away in a dungeon, deprived of freedom, your friends, your family, being physically abused, even executed? These are not pleasant things to contemplate. And so believers and misguided theologians have tried to mitigate the words of Jesus by advocating that God will come to the rescue by defeating the enemies with the gospel before they can do much harm to the church or, or by teaching that the church will be raptured, that is, whisked away to heaven like Elijah before the worst happens. Neither of them is accurate. Oh, maybe if we lived the life that Elijah lived, godly and holy life, that would be true. But there's so much sin in the church today. That cannot be our hope. Jesus clearly taught that the world, what it did to him, they will do to us because of him. I want you to know that the persecution is related, it is related to our association with Jesus and the gospel. In verse 12 of our text, all on account of my name, says Jesus. Well, we could, what about a possible reaction? We could, um, we could ditch Jesus and all would be well with us, right? We could agree with Jesus' words. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own.
Jesus and your fidelity to him brings the world's animosity down upon you. Look at verse 2. They will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to the... Now notice these spheres of influence. They will deliver you to the synagogues. What's that? That's the religious institutions. And prisons. What's that? That's the judicial authorities. And you will be brought before kings and governors. What's that? That's the political authorities. And he goes on to say, all on account of my name. The intimidation then is that all will go well with you if you renounce your faith in Christ. Just do that little thing. Be done with Christ and all will be better for you. During the persecution of the Middle Ages, the believers were given the option to save themselves by recanting their faith. Some did. Many did not. Some did for a little while, and then they rethought their recantation and they recanted the recantation and died as martyrs in the end. Well, I can praise the Lord for that. They had a moment of lapse of faith. They were scared to death of what was going to happen to them or their families. But then, just like Christ had promised They gained their faith and God strengthened their resolve and they recanted or took back their denials. And entered into glory as martyrs for the faith. The real battle is identified by Paul and here it is, writing of Paul. Our struggle, says Paul, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6 verse 12. That's where the battle is. What's that? The evil forces in the heavenly realms. Well, that's Satan and and the demons. Paul goes on, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that is the devil, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient, Ephesians 2 verse 2. Satan dislikes any competition. Islam tolerates no competition. Everywhere in the Muslim world, Christians are being persecuted. Everywhere. And that world is in our own backyard. Secondly, what is the cause for the persecution of Christians? 
Matthew 24, verse 12 says, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. How cold is cold? Well, we're thinking of fall, and then comes winter. I'm talking about spiritual coldness, though. How cold is that? Verse 16 of our text. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. Mark's account says, Brother will betray brother to death, and to father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Mark 13, verse 12 and 13. I read that and I think, well, that is a pretty sad commentary. On our family life. How devastating that the members of our personal families would turn against us because of our faith. The prophet Micah issued this warning. Let me read it for you. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler, de the ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful di dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a thorn hedge. Ooh. The day of your watchman has come. The day God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. Micah 7, verse 2 through 6. That's a prophecy, and then Jesus picks up on that and says, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what's coming. So Jesus' teaching echoed the same. Here's what he says. Do you think that I came to bring peace on the earth? No, no. I tell you, I came but for division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, two against three, they will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said this to the crowd, when you see the cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of this earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? 
Why don't you judge for yourselves what's right? Luke 12, verse 51 through 57. (laughs) Great amateur meteorologists, that's what we are, right? Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the warning, sailors warning. They have all these little things, farmer's almanac. And but Jesus is saying, yeah, but when you look at culture, when you look at people, when you look at the nations and how they're living, when you look at your own family, friends, relatives, and so on, are you as discerning with regard to their attitude and animosity and hatred and vileness towards you, towards Christ, towards the Christian faith and the gospel. Do you have enough discernment to see that? What does Jesus say? He says this, the love of most will grow cold. Ooh. Most. Not a few. Most. Well, how cold is cold? Well, cold enough where filial ties, parent, child, brother, sister, marital ties, the woman or the man with whom you share a bed becomes the one who turns you into the authorities because of your faith. That's how cold. This will not be a minor issue. Jesus says the love of most will grow cold. So, he's saying your blood ties will not preserve you. Your marital ties will not preserve you. And now you know why Jesus taught, do you do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth did not come to bring peace but a sword for I have come to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a grand excuse me a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law man's enemies will be the members of his own household just as Micah predicted oh and then Jesus says anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 34 through 38. Elsewhere, Jesus taught that there is room for only one supreme love in our life. He said it this way, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Mark 12, verse 30. And the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, even when the neighbor is your family, they come second to God, is what Jesus is teaching. So the cause of the persecution is an increased wickedness 
resulting in the love of most growing cold. And it grows cold because there are unbelievers. It's not talking about the true believers. Until this next point. There are surprising participants in the persecution. Matthew 24, verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from, I'm reading scripture, the faith and will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Matthew 24, verse 10, verse 11. Now these verses warn us that the enemy to come is not simply our filial family members who share our bloodline, but our spiritual family members who allegedly share our faith. Our minds, at least my mind, goes to Judas. Judas. In every way, he played the role of a true apostle. He was among the disciples Jesus sent out in Matthew 10 on their first preaching assignment to declare the kingdom of heaven is near with the added instruction, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. And I take that to mean that that was charged to Judas as well. He was by Jesus' side to witness his miracles, to hear his teaching for three years. He was entrusted with the purse of the group as their treasure, but even so, he used to help himself now and again to some of the money, we're told. But I think that was known after the fact. Yet it was this Judas who contacted the religious authorities whom he knew were looking for some way to accuse Jesus and arrest him and execute him. And he agreed to hand Jesus over to them for 30 pieces of silver. The price of a common slave in those days. John 18, he led the soldiers. He led the representatives of the religious elite to the Garden of Gethsemane, which he knew to be a favorite place of prayer for Jesus and his disciples. And there, when he gets to the garden, he kisses Jesus and so identifies him as the one should, who is to be arrested. You've been, this is the one you'll be looking for, the one I kiss. We shake our heads and we say, how, how can three years, all the miracles, all the teaching? Paul tells us of another disciple. The disciple's name was Demas who allegedly converted to Christianity during Paul's ministry at Thessalonica. Paul identifies him along with Luke as a fellow worker in a letter that he wrote to his friend Philemon, Philemon verse 24. He's tagged as one who, along with Paul, sent greetings in a letter to the church at Colossae, Colossians 4, verse 14. But when Paul was imprisoned in Rome and awaiting his trial before Emperor Nero, 
Paul wrote to Timothy saying, Preach the word and be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth or turn aside to miss. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Only Luke is with me. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles that they might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2 and 5. Demas has deserted me. Such apostasies from the faith have occurred historically again and again for various reasons. For money, in the case of Judas. For love of the sin life of the world, Demas. But mostly, I believe, for fear. Fear of reprisals from the authorities. Fear for being a Christian who's going to come under the scrutiny of a hateful administrator. But I'm happy to report that such intimidation tactics do not work, do not work on genuine believers. Say, so how do you know that? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison, joyfully accepting the confiscation of your property. Because you knew, you knew <laughs> that you yourselves had better <coughs> and lasting possessions. Something better. Wow. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you, were, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come, won't delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. No. But of those who believe and are saved. Hebrews 10, verse 32 through 30.
We need to work on our genuine love for one another. John puts it this way. We know, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And anyone who does not love remains in death. And anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. 1 John 3, verse 14 and following. A lot of wonderful examples in the life of Christ, but also in the life of the early Christians, because they endured it all. Now, what are some of the elements of joy? Firstly, the joy of giving a faithful witness to Christ and the gospel. I don't know if you've ever experienced that joy. I hope you have. Luke 21, verse 12 and 13. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in you being witnesses to them. Who's the them? To the authorities who arrested you. That's the them. Matthew says it this way. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Matthew 24 verse 14. I can hear you saying it right now. You're saying to yourself. I, I'm sorry pastor. I can't do that. I, I can't do that. You know, I have, a, I have a hard time talking to my family and friends about Jesus. I stumble, bumble my way through a discussion on the gospel, and I always come away feeling that, oh, oh, you blew it again. You did more harm than good. You should have kept your mouth shut. Well, even if that is your view, God has a different analysis. Let me read it for you. Paul says, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 through 9. Are you a planter of seed? A waterer of the seed that someone else planted? That's good. You don't have to be able to give a whole discourse on theology. Because you the seed planter or you the waterer are not the important person in the salvation of sinners. The important person is God.
Oh, and our text, our text before us, gives a different encouragement. Here it is, verse 14. Make your mind up. I'm reading scripture. Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. There, I think, is the big rub. What am I going to say? Am I going to be tongue-tied or what? Okay, why should I not worry beforehand about my defense? Goes on. Jesus goes on. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. That's why. Luke 21, verse 14 and 15. Promise of scripture, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. What is Paul saying? He says, not the great orators of the gospel that's responsible for people getting saved. It's not the Jonathan Edwards or the Spurgeons or the Billy Grahams. He goes on, Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks, Greeks look for wisdom, but, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, he's the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19 through 25. You give out the seed and someone else waters it and it has the power to create life by God's grace. So there's joy in a faithful witness with the gospel. And the witness is not a long theological discourse. Seed planting or seed watering. Secondly, the joy of suffering, the same treatment as our Lord. Did they not arrest Jesus? Did they not kill him? Yes. Did they haul him free before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, for an interrogation? Yes. After the initial interrogation, was he not transferred to the Praetorian Guard, housed in Jerusalem? Yes. Did he not have his day in court before Pontius Pilate, with whom he had great opportunity to tell him of his true identity? What was his true identity that he told Pilate? Well, that his kingdom was not of this world, but every bit as real as anything Rome called real. Did Pilate... You would have no power over me unless God had given it to you. That's a testimony. 
that he, Jesus, was the truth that Pilate was seeking for when Pilate said to him, what is truth? Well, you're looking at him. Paul put it this way, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Philippians 3.10. Peter put it this way, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's why you're being insulted, you see. You need to get a, a perspective, a different perspective, probably. He goes on. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Praise God that you bear that name. for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God with us and if it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God if it's hard for the righteous to be saved what will become of the ungodly and the sinner so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. 1 Peter 4, verse 13 and following. Just because you're hurting, just because you're suffering, just because your family hates you because you're a Christian, doesn't mean God hates you. Doesn't mean you are worthless. In fact, you're one of the crowns, crowning jewels in God's kingdom. There's joy in suffering what our Lord suffered. Just think of him every every time you experience something like this and just think, Jesus had it worse. He had it worse. And if I experience just a smidget of what he went through. I'm blessed. Oh, and then finally, there's the joy of life eternal. Verse 19 of our text. By standing firm, you will gain life. Life. The martyrs lost their physical lives, but they gained true life, which in the end which in the end will include a resurrected, glorified, immortal body to be reunited with soul. You're not a loser for following Christ. The world calls you a loser, but you're not. Verse 27, 28. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your head, 
because your redemption is drawing near. Yeah, man, praise God. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Oh, and in the meantime, verse 36, be always on the watch. Pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. What was the question asked by the Apostle John in the Revelation? It is this. Speaking of Christ's coming and the judgment to come. For the great day of their wrath, God and God the Son, their wrath, the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Revelation 6 verse 7. And by stand, he means who can pass the examination? Well, Paul put it this way. We will all stand before God's judgment seat. Romans 14, verse 10. That's a given. All means all. But will we stand there dressed in our own shabby, inadequate self-righteousness? Or will we stand dressed in Jesus' perfect righteousness? Of God's salvation, Paul wrote, He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, he's our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28 through 31. In Matthew 10, verse 25, Jesus put it this way. It is enough, it is enough for the servant to be as his master. You're not some great extra task that needs to be fulfilled by you and me. The task has already been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just commanding us to stand with him. When the trials come, stand with me. Don't be ashamed of me. Just stand there and take it. And I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these promises that we have just read and studied. We may think we're out on uncharted waters and for our knowledge of what is coming and how it's all going to shake out, yeah, that's true. We don't know. We don't know the particulars. But we know the one who does know and not only knows them, but controls them. Do we know this God in the flesh? Jesus, the Redeemer. 
I pray that we do. And if not, we're called upon right now, today, to repent of our ignorance, that which we do not know, our lack of faith, our unbelief. We're called upon to repent of those things and every other wicked thing. Not to believe God when he speaks. Wow, what a terrible affrontery that is. But you have spoken, and you have spoken, John says, in these last days by your son. It's wonderful to have the Bible. It's wonderful to have the prophecies. It's wonderful to have the written word of God. But boy, to have the living word of God, to have God in the flesh come to our world and live here for 30-some years and demonstrate by his teaching and his miracles that he is indeed God and Savior of sinners. That revelation is the most excellent of all. The writers of Scripture say, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, so great a Savior? At least in America, we can't say, I didn't know, I didn't hear. I didn't understand. No one ever told me. How was I supposed to know? And on and on people go. Well, we know. And we have been afforded the great blessings of the gospel in the United States since its founding. But Lord, if the gospel isn't part of our heart. What good has it done for us? I pray that you will stir our hearts to live for you if we don't know you, to come to you in saving faith. And if we do know you, to live for you in ways that the world will see and glorify Christ. We want our relatives to be saved, our children, our grandchildren, our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers, Aunts and uncles, yes, our filial family, we want them to be saved with us. But Lord, unless you move hearts and open eyes, it just isn't going to happen. So move. We're asking for a revival. We're asking for an outpouring of your spirit. And these the days in which we live. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 369. Is it? A, is, do we know the tune? Okay, three sixty nine. Let's stand together.
great words in that hymn. Wow. Amen. Well, I pray that you've been blessed by the word today. Now tonight we have music night. You say, well, what's music night? Well, just like it sounds, we have people that will be singing solos, maybe, duets. We will have readings from the scripture. Sheila usually brings us a reading or a story of a hymn and how it was written and what was behind it. And I don't know, we're going to have any instrumentals, maybe? Maybe not. Got our instrumental people, we need to get them fired up. But anyway, uh, come out tonight at 6 o'clock and uh, we'll sing from 6 to 7 and then we'll have an ice cream social to follow downstairs. See you at 6. Ice cream social? If you don't know, you don't get it. <laughs> Thank you. We're